The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I, have, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. So now faith, hope, love, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are good to us. You are faithful when we are not. Your love is steadfast. It's one way. It comes after us. It pursues us and chases us down and attacks us and overwhelms us. And we thank you for such aggressive love shown toward us through your son Jesus. And I ask this morning that you would help me as a sinful man. You would help me preach your perfect word to imperfect people. That you would help us hear it and understand it. That we would respond in faith and repentance, Father God. This would be for your glory and our delight in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you are just joining us, we are working through the last seven months. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a a letter that was written to a church in the city of Corinth um, in the first century, uh, roughly about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. We're studying it verse by verse. It's all we do at Sacred City. We don't have a lot of flashy um, sermon series or anything. We just work through books of the Bible. We think it's the best way to understand the whole counsel of God, to understand everything the Bible teaches, is to work through books of the Bible. So once we're done with 1 Corinthians, um, it looks like we'll be jumping into the book of Jonah, going back to the Old Testament for a few weeks. We're going to study the book of Jonah for six or seven weeks, and then we'll go right into Advent. Uh, and then we're just we're waiting to see what God wants us to do for the first of the year, but it, it might be, it looks like it's going to be, a gospel, and we'll be in that for a while. So we are in the middle of 1 Corinthians. Actually, we're towards the end of it. We're in the famous chapter, right? The chapter that everybody has, the chapter that's on the T-shirt, right? The chapter that's on the coffee cup, the chapter that's recited at the wedding, uh, the chapter that's on the Hallmark card. We are smack dab in the middle of that right now. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. And we start, we're going to spend three or four weeks in this chapter. We started here last week. And 
to summarize last week, Jonathan Edwards has this quote, and he says this. This is what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. Summarization by Jonathan Edwards, America's uh, greatest theologian that we've ever produced. He says this. The ordinary influence of the Spirit of God working the grace of love in the heart is a more excellent blessing than any extraordinary gift of the Spirit. Okay? Jonathan Edwards says, you want to know what 1 Corinthians is about? Love is better than every other gift. You can talk in the tongues of angels all you want, but love trumps that. You can prophesy uh, all you want, but love trumps that. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about that last week. That when you have a spiritual gift, whether it's the gift of some kind of speaking or the gift of, you know, the gift of eloquence or if you have whatever gift or the gift of serving, right? All gifts do, gifts are like a projector that goes behind your back and projects through you, projects your heart to the watching world, okay? All gifts do is project what's already in your heart. If you're selfish, your gift will just project that selfishness. But love is different. Love doesn't project what's in the heart. Love has this sneaky way of getting down into the heart and then changing the heart itself. So gifts don't tell us anything about our heart other than maybe they expose it. But love actually changes our heart. And last week I said that God, when he saves people, when he comes into their life and he we have an encounter with God, he always brings two things. He brings light and he brings with it heat. Light is a new understanding. It's a new way of maybe hear, when you hear the gospel and it comes into your mind and you, oh, I realize I'm a sinner. Oh, I realize Jesus Christ came to live the life that I couldn't live and he died the death that I deserve and it changes my mind, right? There's this light, this new understanding of the world that the gospel brings. But it's also, it also brings a heat with it. It also brings a warmth to the heart. It also brings love into our life. A love, a true love for God and a true love for others. And last week I spoke uh, using Edwards' illustration about the dangers with light without heat. So the dangers of having this cognitive understanding of the gospel but not having it affect your heart, not having any warmth for God or warmth for other human beings. And I think that's common in our society today that people have this intellectual assent to the truths or the tenets of Christianity, but they don't have a gospel-changed, a gospel-shaped heart. There's something wrong there. That is what we would call a gospel issue. The gospel must penetrate our minds and then warm our hearts with love for God and love for others. But there's also another danger. And in the culture that we live in, a very experiential culture, right, a culture that's all about uh, marketing, all about billboards, all about emotions, all about feelings, there's this also, also this temptation to try to separate heat from light. We, we want the warmth of the emotion. We want the warmth of love, but we don't want the truth of the love. We don't want the knowledge. We don't want the, the uh, intellectual side of things. We try to separate. This is really true in, in the many charismatic churches. You kind of hear this often. We don't need doctrine. We need love. Shut off the doctrine Turn on the love. When the funny thing is, if you really get down into that, and I think a lot of people, don't give me truth. Don't give me edges. Uh, just love is just whatever. Love is just this soft feeling, ooey-gooey thing that's out there. Um, don't give me doctrine. Don't give me truth. Don't, don't say this is loving and that's not loving. And the interesting thing is, that itself, if you say, I don't want doctrine, I don't want theology, 
I want love, that itself, what you just said, that's a doctrine. It's a bad doctrine, right? But it's a doctrine when you, when you say that, right? You're, you're making a rule for people. And then the funny thing is, then, I, then we, every, people kind of, yeah, we don't want doctrine. We want love. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember when I was a youth pastor, I used to preach this garbage, right? I'll be honest. Do the whole, you know, shut up and love. I remember doing this whole series around it. And it was big and everything. Everybody's exciting. And the bar, problem is, we go, yeah. And then one person goes, but what is love? I need some doctrine, right? Soon as you ask, what is love? The answer to that question will be doctrine. No matter what it is, it's going to be doctrine. Now, you might say it's emotion. You might say it's a feeling. You might say whatever you want to say, but that's going to be a doctrine. So you can't separate love from truth. You can't separate love from doctrine. When you try to do it, you kill both. You have bad doctrine, and you, have, and you lose love itself. Now, we see this, or we saw this, in, uh, and, and I said last week, I like to say that love has edges. It's not, a, it's not a bubble, right? Love has sharp edges. There are things that are loving and there are things that are not loving. It has sharp edges. And um, at the beginning of World War II, Gandhi encouraged, in the name of love, Gandhi encouraged the British to surrender to Hitler. He even quoted Jesus, love your enemies, when he did it. And he said, listen, we need to love we need to love. We should surrender to the Nazis, right? Now that is, Gandhi took the principle of love. He knocked off its sharp edges by separating love from truth, the fact that Hitler was evil, and he needed to be stopped. See, love doesn't tolerate evil. Love will fight. Love will argue. Did you know that there's no place in the Bible that says don't be angry? It says be angry and sin not. Why? Because love has sharp edges. If you are going to try to hurt my children, <laughs> right, I will get angry with you. You will feel my sharp edge. I'm going to tell you that, right? If you try to do something to my wife, you're going to feel, love has sharp edges. There are some things that we, we can draw a line in some things and say black and white, this is loving, this is not loving. Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, makes the point that the most loving thing to do with the Nazis was to go to war with them. To bring truth into their world. To confront them with truth. And that's what Paul is doing here to the Corinthians. He's literally going to war with them. He's confronting them in love. Now, I wonder how many of us think confrontation and love are just the opposite ends of the spectrum. Love is just passive passivity. Love is just smiling and letting whatever it be, be. Love is some kind of oprified, you know, good feelings of just be it and dream it and be who you are and all kind of these hokey sayings that we all say. I, I saw one yesterday that said, believe in yourself, even if you're lying to yourself. I said, hmm. Right? You put that on a little meme that'll that'll go around the world on Facebook. Believe in yourself, even if you're like, yeah, no. See, can I ask you this morning, do you have people in your life who love you enough to literally go to war with you? Do you have people in your life right now who love you enough 
Listen, that they're willing to cross your will. A lot of people died going to war with the Nazis, saving all the people that they were persecuting, right? All the genocide that was going on. Yeah, we loved them, so we went to war with them, but we also loved, loved the Nazis. We, we have hope for their future. We want to confront them with love that the most loving thing to do for the Nazis was to go to war with them. Sometimes the most loving thing to do with your spouse or with your friend or with your person in your missional community is to cross their will. Is to, in a sense, go to war with them. You have somebody in your life, when you're on the brink of making a bad decision, when you're on the brink, when you're showing signs that you're drifting from the gospel, do you have someone that says, bro, 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 hold on, have you thought about this? Have you talked about this? Let's walk. I'm going to challenge you on that. Do you have somebody in your life? Do you have several people in your life that are willing to do that? Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, it's, I'm going to say this. It's deceitful for Christian brothers and sisters to sit back while a person makes bad decisions. It's deceitful for us to sit back and go, hear that they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're moving their family to a place that they don't know anything about the churches in that area, they don't know anything about community in that area, and all they're doing is following a job. It's deceitful for a Christian to go back, mm, okay, have fun. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Man, I know you really think that something great's out there, that if you move there, maybe you're not happy with what's going on right here, and you think if you get there, something's going to be different, but I'm going to challenge you on that. Maybe, maybe you're going to say, hey, You've got this missional community around you. You've got these people that love and care around you. You've got this environment of gospel change around you that your kids can grow up understanding and knowing the gospel. I'm going to challenge you on that. Now, I know, I get this. We're Americans. <gasps> who's, that, who's there to tell me what to do and what I can and can't do? Listen, you have the right to be a moron. I'll tell you that. Do you really want to fight for that right? Or would you not appreciate someone stepping up and saying, bro, listen, just because you met the girl on Match.com doesn't mean if you move to that city, it's going to be better there, okay? That might not even be her picture. Let's just be honest. See, there's many of us that need someone to confront us. You're about to buy that $40,000 vehicle. You might need somebody to step and go, bro, I don't know if that's a good decision. You might, be, you might be seeing the grass greener on the other side and you think divorce is the only way out. You might be hinting at that relationship with the secretary and just throwing out the signs and she's responding. You're thinking, yep, you know what? I think this is true love here. Love's dead back here with my wife or with my spouse and, and I, I might, I'm just on the brink and I'm on the edge and you need someone to faithfully wound you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You need a Christian friend to step in and go, bro, this is not gonna go well for you. Every single one of us need that. So, love has sharp edges. What are those sharp edges? Let's open up the Word of God and let's look. <clears throat> First Corinthians 13. Start with verse 4. Love is patient. The King James Version said, love suffereth long. Love suffereth long. 
I just like I like that because patient. I don't. I just patient. I don't get patience. <laughs> I don't have patience. Let's just say that first. But I don't even. I don't even understand. It. But suffereth long. That makes sense to me because that's what being patient feels like. Whether it's in the line at Walmart, right, or whether it's trying to finish my, your degree, or whether it's trying to wait for a promotion, or whether uh, my wife would say whether it's waiting on giving birth. Right. This is long suffering we're talking about here. Patience, love is patient. Love suffers long. That's what love does. Sounds a little bit like marriage. Right? Now, that, I think if we just got that, that might change our definition of marriage, change our understanding of marriage, that sometimes marriage is going to be difficult. Sometimes marriage is long-suffering, and that's part of love. Right? You push through. You link arms together. You plow through very difficult, long, sometimes lonely, painful, dark seasons. Love is long-suffering. That's a sharp edge. So if you can't suffer, you can't love. What else? Love is kind. That's in the midst of adversity, when people are being unkind to you, when things are not going well and they're speaking evil of you and they're gossiping about you and they're lying about you and they're slandering you, you can respond in kindness to them. Love is kind. Love, let's just go with what love is. I'm just going to say what love is from this text right here, okay? We'll, we'll talk about what love is not in a second. Love is patient, love is kind. Um, it does not insist on its own way. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean love is gullible. It means love always keeps the faith. Love always keeps on believing, trusting God. That's what love does. Love hopes all things and endures all things. Indeed, love never fails. Now, this is interesting for us. When we want to know the sharp edges of love, what is love? Paul doesn't define love. Okay, you can Wikipedia that if you want. Paul doesn't define love here as much as he, do, as much as he describes love. He doesn't define it, he describes it. And this list, of course, is not meant to be uh, exhaustive of what love is. In fact, what Paul is doing, Paul is choosing the words that describe love as the very opposite of the Corinthians' behavior. So he's confronting them in love. He's going to war with them, and he's saying this. Oh, you want to know what love is? Love is patient. You're not. Love is kind. Not like you. Right? You want to know what love is? It's the opposite of what you're doing. This, and, and this rebuke, let's just put this in context. This rebuke that he's doing I said last week, it's kind of like a soft little toss of a grenade in their lap. This is love. This in itself is loving, guys. When someone, and listen, if you are dating another deadbeat, another alcoholic, another abuser, another promiscuous person, another man who, I'm just, uh, I hate to use that word, another uh, boy dressed up as a man, okay? another boy who can shave. If you're dating another one and your missional community, your friends step in and go, sister, he's a loser. You have a choice. 
I can't believe they'd say that to me. Oh, I thought they loved me. I thought they accepted me. I thought they were on my side. They are on your side. Sister, they love you. They are confronting you in love to save you future pain. Right? That's what they're wanting. They're confronting you in love. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's confronting them in love. And I know it's difficult. It's difficult for both sides of that. Sometimes it's difficult to be confronted. And oftentimes it's difficult for us to really think, do I really have to step into this? Because it's stepping into war. You're going to get hurt. If I'm confronting you, I know I'm taking a bullet to the head. I'm a jerk. Got it. Thank you for that one. Right? They might leave the church. They might be angry at you. They might get frustrated with you. But it's the loving thing to do. It's not loving to sit on your hands and watch someone tank their life again. And what we see in this commentary here, or what what D.A. Carson, one of the commentators, what he says about this text here is not one element. When he's describing love, not one element is sentimental. Everything is behavioral. See, Paul doesn't use adjectives to describe love. He uses verbs, 15 of them in these three verses. It shows us that love is dynamic. Love is active. Love is stepping into situations. It's not something passive. It's not just sitting by and smiling and letting people tank their life. It's not being, quote-unquote, tolerant of every type of behavior. The loving thing to do would just be shut up and let me be a fool. That's not love. Love is stepping in saying, I love you so much, I'm going to confront you, I'm going to cross your will, and I'm probably going to be hurt by it. You're probably going to lash out at me and get angry at me. And I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to let you be unkind to me so that I can love you well. That's what love does. Parents, you should know that. Love hurts, doesn't it? When you love your kid, right? Love hurts. Love steps in the middle of between them and their... uh, between you and their selfishness, and, and bad things happen. That love is not, Paul says, some kind of inner feeling, some kind of emotion only. That this type of love, Paul says, it has to be shown. It has to be displayed. It has to come out as action. And what we see here is Paul is speaking right into the middle of an unhealthy church, right into the middle of an unhealthy missional community, And he says, you want to know how to love one another as Christians? Do the opposite of what you're doing right now. That's what he says. Confronts right in the middle of them. Sharp edges of love. Patience. Kind. And then he says this. Love is not. We got some more sharp edges. This is what love is. This is how to describe love. This is what love is not. And what does he say? Love is not envious. That means love can suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who rejoice and love when somebody else gets lifted up. Love doesn't, love doesn't uh, envy that person. Say, I wish I had that. I should have that. I'm as talented as they are. I deserve it. See, that means when somebody else, gets re- somebody else is rejoicing, you are suffering. And when somebody else that you think you're better than, when they suffer, you're rejoicing. Yes, they get what they deserve. See, love doesn't envy. Love isn't boastful. This is actually, this is funny. It's actually literally translated. Love isn't a, a bragging windbag. I like that. Love isn't a, I shouldn't like that, actually. 
Love isn't a bragging windbag. Love isn't arrogant, puffed up, all about themselves. Love isn't rude. Love isn't insistent on its own way. Now, this word right here, it's actually two words in the Greek, and it's hard to translate. Um, It's translated a lot of different ways, insistent on its own way. I think the best translation is probably love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking, okay? Love isn't about itself. Love isn't only after what's good for number one. Love isn't irritable. Love isn't resentful. Now listen, you know what that love is not? Love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking, irritable, resentment. Sounds a lot like either high school or Facebook. I couldn't decide on which one. Can I ask you, why are people like that? Why are people like that? Why do people envy others and brag about their accomplishments? Why do we get so irritable when people cross our wills? And why do we resent them so much when they hurt us? I think Paul shows us the key in verse 5 when he lists, when he's listing everything love is not. He uses this phrase that it does not insist on its own way. It is not self-seeking. See, what Paul's getting at here is that people who are not centered on God, are not centered on love, are, are then therefore, because they're not centered on God, they are therefore centered on their self. Self-centered, self-seeking. Their center of their world is themselves. And I'm going to tell you this. Self-centered people are what is wrong with the world. Writing into a British newspaper, I think I've shared this with you before, I know I have, G.K. Chesterton, when they wrote and said, hey, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back, thank you so much for the invitation to speak into this matter. Uh, What is wrong with the world? It's easy. I am. See, self-centeredness is what's wrong with our world. Did you know that you can trace every single thing that is wrong with our world back to self-centeredness? See, when God created the world, he said, it is good. Everything was beautiful. Everything was peaceful. Everything was emanating from God's own goodness. He was the creator. He was the originator. He was the center of all things. Everything revolved around God. Everything good reflected his goodness. See, beauty came from the beauty of God. Truth came from the truth of God. Goodness came from the goodness of God. Virtue came from the virtuousness of God. God was the center of everything. But in Genesis 3, we see angels and humans rebel against this God-centeredness of creation. We see the created being, the human, say to God, I don't trust you, I trust me. I think I can be the center of my world. I can find beauty and goodness and truth on my own. I can define that for myself. And this was the origin of sin. This, when you go back, this is patient zero. This is where the outbreak started. See, Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the first humans chose self-centeredness over God-centeredness, which is what sin is at its core. The DNA of sin. When you, ever, when you people talk about sin, the Bible's the, the DNA of sin is a self-centeredness. 
putting self above all things. My, my opinions, myself is more important than what God says, what other people say. That's what sin is, self-centeredness. And like God promised, this rebellion brought epic consequences. Self-centeredness ruined their relationship with God, right? You want to be the, if you want to be God, you want to be the center of everything, it's going to break that relationship there. Self-centeredness ruined the relationship with each other. Now they were, uh, there was envy, there was jealousy, there was hiding, there was shame, there was guilt, and all of those things destroy relationships. And there was a, a destruction of their relationship with the rest of creation. Animals hid. See, they were cursed with the self-centeredness that they would continue to pass on to their children. And this self-centeredness would eventually end in their death. Now, that is a very bleak situation. If you read it, it is a bleak situation, but it's not totally dark. It's not without a light. There's still hope at the end of the tunnel. See, God promised in this moment to send someone who would make all things new and reverse the curse of self-centeredness. But before we go there, let me ask you parents. Let's just, let me ask you, is this still true? Are your children still born self-centered? Are, are they? Now, I, I get there's this whole, you know, the, the, I just want to, the Facebooking of America that these children are just absolutely, you know, if you look at Facebook, all they do is awesome things, right? That's all they do. But in, in reality, when, when, as a parent, when you, when you interact with your child, do they come out of the womb centered on you, centered on others, centered on God, or do they come out centered on themselves? See, what happens, parents, what happens the first time you have to cross their will? You say, no, my daughters, my son, my kids came out of the womb being disobedient, right? What, you try to put a diaper on them, right? They're kicking, they're back arching, they're flipping over, they're reaching for stuff they should not touch, right? And you say no, and they think it's a game. It's even, it's even funnier. Oh, I'm going to see if I can do something in his face, right? Like, they come out of the womb self-centered. What happens when you cross their will? What happens? No, this is even best. This is the best one. What happens when you cross their will in the grocery, in the grocery store? See, they know you can't get to them. They know you, that you can threaten you'll take them to the van. You can threaten you'll take them to the, to the bathroom, but they know he ain't going to do it. He'd have to put all of his groceries back, and he'd have to go all the way back to the back of the store. He's not going to do it. This is an empty threat. They know it right away. So wham, the devil comes out right in the middle of the grocery store. They start flopping around like a perch on the dock, right, screaming. You cross their will. They freak out. Now, listen, this never changes with your children. What happens when you cross a teenager's will? What happens when you, when you cross a toddler or a, a junior high? You cross their will, and eventually what they do, they curse you. This child, okay, who you've given everything you could possibly give to them, you've given the majority of your income, you put a roof over their head, you put clothes on their back, you feed them, you love them, you sit for hours at their sporting events, you cheer for things that you know you should not cheer for, right? Oh, yes, that was a good effort, good effort, right? You've done all of this, and then this moment where you say, no, they curse you. You hate me. You never let us do anything fun. You don't love me. 
This, this week, the, the best one for me, this week, my daughter, I told her no. After We did a lot of things this week. It was a great week for us as a family. And I, I, said, I finally said no, and she pitched a little fit. She goes, Daddy, you're giving me a fever. <laughs> and I just, look, I just lost it. I just started laughing. I'm like, I'll take it, but just blame me. I don't think I, I can actually do that, but the fact that you think I can is funny to me, right? And that's what love is. You're in the middle of their foolishness. You're in the middle of their self-centeredness. You, as a parent, you take all the wounds that they have to offer, right? This absolute foolishness. What are, my, what are your kids' first words? I mean, I'm, thankfully, I think all my kids' first word was daddy, and then mommy, and then no, me, mine. And my baby, my, my Piper, she's two years old. It doesn't matter where she's at in the house. If you hear somebody go, hey, hey, uh, Zoe, you want to go on a date with daddy tonight? All of a sudden, I hear Piper, wherever she's at, me! Like, that's her word now. You may want to go to the pool, me! Like, she loves the word me. That's what she's into right now. She loves her some me, okay? She's into me. Now, you might be a person in this room who doesn't believe the Bible. You might be a person that doesn't think Genesis tells us where we come from. But I don't think you can argue with the fact that every child is still born into this world as completely self-centered. And what the Bible says is that's what's wrong with the world, this radical self-centeredness. And what the Apostle Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 13 is the key marker of Christian, of a Christian's love, a key marker of a Christian is love, and love is not self-centered. So we're born self-centered, but the key marker of a Christian is not self-centeredness. So we have a problem here. And what I think the Apostle Paul is saying, the Apostle Paul is trying to get across, is that love is far from something you fall into. And far more like, listen, a radical reshaping of a person's relationship to himself. Love is more like a radical reshaping of a person's relationship to himself. Look what love is not. All of those things, envious, boastful, all about themselves, all of those things are about a person's relationship to themselves. Their will, their ego is the center of them just like a baby. I think it's, that's, that's why Paul is saying, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, but now when I grew up, see, see this self-centeredness is childlike. See, that's what's wrong with that 30-year-old man who's in, the, in his mom's basement playing video games, right? Convincing himself that he needs to level up, right? He needs to man up and get a jobby job and move out of mom's house. That's what he needs to do. But their ego is at their center. Their will is at their center. Their comfort is at their center. And that's childlike, just like a baby. And Paul's saying, listen to this. But we can all relate here, not just to that guy. Paul's saying, the greatest enemy to love is you. It's your selfishness. It's your self-centeredness. It's your incessant need. And you know you have this need, an incessant need to make it all about you. Sin 
removes God from the center of the universe and places me on the throne. You know what it does? Listen, this is what happens. If you take God out of the center of your life and you have and yourself is the center of it, you know what it does? Is it shrinks the world down to me size. It shrinks the possibility for joy. It shrinks community. It shrinks the humanity. It shrinks the world down to what you can ham- ham- handle, you can manage. Now, the world is only as big as my wants and my needs and my desires and my families. And if you are willing to serve me, then I have a place for you in my life. It's a small, small world. But if you can't serve me, and if you're one of those people that cross my will, and you try to bring the truth in to speak into me, I'll, I'll curse you, I'll, I'll, get a, I'll push you away, I'll change churches, I'll get out of that missional community, because I want people to serve me. I want to be the center. It's a really small world. Now, I doubt, when I, when I paint it that big, most of us go, oh man, that'd be awful. Those people must really be in trouble. So how, how do I know? How do you know if I'm talking to you? How do I know if I'm talking? How do you know if you are a self-centered person? Well, we're told that in the Garden of Eden, right, self-centeredness caused them to distrust God. They trusted themselves. They trusted their heart. Mm-hmm. They trusted their feelings. They trusted their emotions more than they trusted God. Can I ask you this morning, what do you trust? See, isn't that what, what you're, why you're afraid of uh, confrontational community? Because you're afraid that somebody's going to challenge your emotion. Somebody's going to challenge the feeling that you have towards this person or that person or that job or that offer. The way you're living your life, the way how you're spending your time, the way you're discipling your kids, the way you're loving or not loving your wife. Aren't you afraid somebody's actually going to challenge that? You really trust yourself so much that you're afraid somebody's going to challenge that? See, Paul is writing here, and he's, he's clear. He's saying love is not trusting yourself. Your views, your ideologies, your opinions, your feelings, your ways are always the right ways. Left not, that's the opposite of love. Let me, let me give you this example. When you, when it says love is patient, when we talked about a little bit last week about being patient with God. When you get frustrated with God, that he's not giving you what you think you want or what you think you need. It could be a spouse. It could be a job. It could be peace with the kids in the home. It could be money. Whatever it is, you get frustrated with God. Your life is not going how you plan. Your problem, listen, let me just diagnose this real quick. Your problem is not that God isn't good. That's not your problem. Your problem is that you are trusting yourself again. See, you are self-centered and not God-centered, and you think that you know what's best for you. And if God, see, you put you at the center. If God really cared for me, if God really loved me, he would do what I want, when I want, how I want it. Do you see that? That's why you get frustrated with God. God's not doing what you want. You think you know what's best. But you don't know how God, you don't know what God knows. You're not omniscient. You don't see how God sees. Right? So you get frustrated with God because you think he needs to do what you want him to do. 
But let, can we just think about this? Let's be serious here. Isn't there already insurmountable evidence that you should not trust yourself? Haven't you proved a hundred times, a thousand times over that you don't always know what you really want or you really need? Haven't you proved that? Right? When you prayed for that other person, that other spouse, right? You prayed for that person, the relationship failed, right? Or whatever, whatever it is, you, this is the right way, and you went headlong into it, and you caused a train wreck of your life. You've destroyed relationships, hurt people, damaged businesses. Isn't there a lot of evidence if you look down the, the, the wake of your life to say, I shouldn't trust myself? I shouldn't trust my heart. I can convince myself that what I want is really the best thing. Like, I, I can deceive myself pretty easy. Paul says, if that's you, if that's us, if you're, if you're really a self-centered person, your wants, your desires, your emotions are the center of the universe. I, wanna, I just want to speak. If you're, if you're highly emotional in here, okay? You really need to be set free from thinking that just that your emotions are reality, that your emotions are truth, that your emotions determine what behavior you have to follow. You don't have to follow every emotion you have. They're not truth all the time. And I think in our culture, we think that we just, whatever we feel, we have to act upon. We don't. Paul says if you are a radically trusting, self-trusting person, you trust your emotions. You, you, when you're angry, you know you have a right to be angry and everybody should be angry because they hurt me. If you're a radically self-trusting person, you need to be radically reshaped from the inside out. You need love to come into your heart and make something or someone else more important than your own ego. You need your world to be enlarged. You need your soul to stretch beyond its own interest and enter into God's glorious world of love. I'm going to be honest. You want to, know, you want to destroy a church? You want to destroy a missional community? You drop a lot of self-centered people in one group and say, get along. Everybody's opinions, everybody's emotions, it's just injury and, and it's just pain and turmoil and strife waiting to happen. And Paul is looking into this community where that's going on, and he says love has got to get in there, and love's got to rework the human heart. Love's got to do some radically reshaping of a person's relationship to himself, that somehow their ego can become secondary to God. Listen to this quote by Edwards again. If you are selfish and make yourself and your private interests your idol, God will leave you to yourself and he'll let you promote your own interests as well as you can. But if you do not selfishly seek your own, 
but you do seek the things that are Jesus Christ and things of your fellow beings, then God will make your interest and happiness his own charge. And he is infinitely more able to provide for and promote it than you are. The resources of the universe move at his bidding, and he can easily command them all to subserve your welfare. He goes on to say, so that not to seek your own in the selfish sense is actually the best way of seeking your own in a better sense. It is the directest course you can take to secure your highest happiness. So he's saying, if you're self-centered, God will let you be self-centered. And he, he really does say, good luck with that. Trying to get the universe to bend to your will, trying to get the neighbors to bend, trying to get your missional community to bend, to everybody to get to see things the way you, God says, good luck with that. Frustration awaits. Control. Anybody struggle with control? I want my kids to do this. I want my husband to do this. I want my wife to do this. I want my business to do this. I'm trying to control. He says, good luck with that. Frustration awaits. Or you can seek God. You can seek Jesus Christ. You can seek the center of the universe and trust him who actually has every single quark in the universe under his control. The one who can move things around as the way he wants. He says he puts, he exalts kings and he pulls them down. The heart of the king is in his hand. That God is in absolute control of everything in the universe. And if you seek him, seek ye first in his kingdom, all these things will be gathered, gathered, all these things will be added unto you, Jesus says. That there's a way of seeking your ultimate interest by, ulti- by, by making your, by making God's purpose ultimate and yours underneath it. as I close here. So how do we make this change? How do we go? If we're born self-centered, mine, me, how do we, how do we change? How does love come in and how does, how does our heart change? What does this look like for us? How do we go from radically self-centered people to God-centered people who love others and love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? Let me get a little Disney on you. Listen, I've got four kids, one in utero, But the other three, they're Disney freaks, and you're going to have to get used to some Disney illustrations for the next six or seven years, okay? Now listen, what wakes Snow White, right? Snow White eats the apple, Mm -hmm. right? She's in the death sleep. What wakes Snow White from her death sleep? True love's kiss. Come on, you Disney theologians. I know you know what I'm talking about. True love's kiss, okay? What, here we go, now we'll get a little modern on you. What unfreezes Anna and the rest of the kingdom in Frozen? Do we know this one yet? Maybe not. An act of true love by the self-sacrifice of her sister, Queen Elsa. Now, this is interesting because J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they used to call, they used to speak of Christianity as the true myth, the myth that became fact. That all great stories in the world ultimately point to something that's true about Christianity. That that our story is the story that makes sense of all others. See, these Disney movies are on to something here. How do we get free from self-centeredness? How do we get changed from being radically self-centered to radically God-centered? How do we go from all about me to love? A true and greater love must awaken us. An act of true love must thaw our frozen, self-centered hearts. And I think most of the time, this usually comes in one of three ways, okay? I'm just going to make it really fast and say this. It either comes through beauty, 
we see it, we see something beautiful, radically beautiful, more beautiful than ourselves, and we're in awe of it, and it changes, and it melts us. It comes through beauty. It comes through higher truth. Sometimes we, we learn a truth that just awakens our mind, and we realize it's truer than everything else we've believed before. It's more true than everything we've believed before. So it comes from beauty, truth, or virtue, a, a pure virtue a moral goodness that's better than anything we have to offer. We see it, we savor it, it moves us, it melts our heart. And I'm going to say this, it's no secret. Ultimately, beauty, truth, moral goodness, virtue, all of these things are found ultimately, ultimately in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the true love that must awaken us. If I, if I have to use this illustration, Jesus Christ is our Prince Charming. He is the one who must kiss us and awaken us. He is the one whose love must free us from our sleep of death. He's the only one that can do it. And we are called his bride. So if men, you get a little nervous about kissing. I don't know about this kissing Jesus stuff, right? He is, we are the bride of Christ. He is our groom. He must awaken us. Now, okay, how does that happen? Let, let, let's just look at this. I want you to replace it. We're going to read this, uh, these three verses again. And, and I'm going to put my name in for love. And I want you to put your name in for love as we read it. Okay? And this is why. If you do, not because I think I'm love, because I think it's absolutely ridiculous when I say it like this. Justin is patient. Justin is kind. Justin does not envy or boast. Justin is not arrogant. Justin is not rude. Justin does not insist on its own way. Justin is not irritable or resentful. Justin does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Justin bears all things. Justin believes all things. Justin hopes all things. Justin endures all things. Justin never ends. <laughs> Do you see how, literally, I want to just add to that, Justin is a liar. <laughs> None of those things are true about me. And if you put your name in there, I hope you can. I hope you have at least the self-awareness to see that none of them are true about you. And even though people stand up and they sing them out over your wedding and they speak them out over your wedding, good luck with that, right? See, I see in myself, and I think this text is meant to show us something that we should see in ourselves. everything, all the things that love isn't, we should see in ourselves. But at the same time, this is the beatific vision here. This is the higher truth. This is the moral goodness. At the same time, I see in myself everything that love isn't, all the opposite characteristics of love I see in myself. I see in Jesus everything that love is. And in spite of my self-love, in spite of my self-centeredness, Jesus loved me enough to cross my will. He loved me enough to take my wrath upon himself on the cross. Parents, just like you step in between your ch child and their self-centeredness, and you take that wrath, 
Love always takes the wrath. Love always takes the punishment. Jesus Christ took, stepped in front of us and took our punishment and took our wrath. He loved us enough to awaken us from our self-love slumber. And he did that through his own God-centered love. I say the only way for us to be, to have his heart changed, to have this love awaken us, to go from self-centered to God-centered, to be able to love truly, the only way for that to happen is for us to be enamored with, overtaken by, dare I say, to fall into the one-way love of God, the steadfast love of God. The only way for us to change is for the love of God to chase us down and overtake us. God's love put on display for us in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the beauty that awakens us. That is the truth that sets us free. That is the virtue that will change us into lovers. That when we read this, love is patient, love is kind, Paul says in Romans 2, 2, 4, God is patient. God is love. He is the one long-suffering. God was kind to us in sending Jesus to save us from judgment. That this depiction is what we should be. We should be like this. Why? Because this is who God is. He's kind. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He puts up with our sin in order to deal with it at the cross. He forgives us. He washes us completely clean. So as you see this, as we read this text, as I, this is my last thing right here. I don't want you to come in here today and hear, be loving. Go love others. Love your wife better. Love your kids better. Love your neighbor better. Go do it. That's moralism. That's self-help. That's you can do it. What, I'm, what I want you to see, and this might not be, this might be, this is kind of confrontational. That this des- description of love is not you. And ultimately, you can't do it. And you can't love like this. And I think most people would look, this altruistic love, we would look and go, I wish the world was like this. I wish this was a depiction of our world. Our whole world is patient. Our whole world is kind. Our whole world doesn't seek its own. And can I tell you, if you hope for that, the, the Christian worldview says it's coming. That, that's the world that's coming. Like heaven, the new heavens and the new earth will be a world of love. It's coming. But right now, when we look at this, this isn't us, and it's not meant to go, I'm going to be loving. It's meant to show us Jesus. It's meant to show us our lack and his sufficiency. So as we get ready to come to the table this morning, that's what it's about. Believing the gospel, not doing better. I don't want you to hear, go be better, go be loving. I want you to hear, believe the gospel. Believe that you're not loving, you're not kind, you're not patient, but Jesus is so patient with you, and Jesus was so kind for you, and Jesus was so long-suffering for you on the cross that Jesus gave it all up for you. And I think when you meditate on that and you think on that and you believe that, it will melt your heart and it will make you into a more loving person. By believing through faith, not through trying hard and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you're in this room today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to say, what are you waiting for? Can you see the beauty of Christ? Can you see the virtue of Christ? Can you see the truth that's in Jesus Christ? Embrace it. 
See, you think, oh, he's just a moral teacher. Gandhi, could, Gandhi didn't have the sharp edges to truth. Oh, we should just lay our arms down for Hitler. As millions of people burn. See, love over God. You can't do that. God is truth. God is love. Love has sharp edges. Only Christianity holds these two together. Embrace Jesus Christ by faith. As we come to take the bread and the wine, would you take Christ by faith? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Once again, I'm just cut to the heart with how how far I fall, how far from uh, Jesus I am. There's no comparison between myself and Jesus. And I pray that we would all could could see that Jesus is love. And and my life is characterized more by self-love. And I need a greater love to awaken me. And we need a greater love to awaken us. Would you do that this morning? Would you breathe your spirit in us? Would you, uh, as it says in Romans, would the spirit pour the love of Jesus Christ into our hearts and teach us how to say Daddy, teach us how to say Abba, Father. Would you do that for us? We're thirsty and we need your water. We're hungry and we need to be fed by you. As we come to the table and we take that, take what we need, drink what we need and eat what we need, that we come to the table, we come to the body of our Lord, we come to the blood of our Lord that sets us free from sin, that, that speaks a better word to us, that reminds us of the world to come, that in heaven, in the new earth, it will be a world of love. We long for that day as we sit in between the times right now and the here, the already, but the not yet. We sit here and we long, we wait for the day where love will characterize all of society. Would you bring that future reality? Would you bring it to bear here now? Would you make this church and this community more loving as we meditate on your love? Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name. Amen.